Hey, church fam, you're listening to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. We're praying God would speak to you through it and you would see Christ-centered life change. Here's your pastor, Ben Kimfer. We are uh, in the last week of this series called Codependent Jesus. And if you hear that and you think, man, that sounds you know, substantially heretical, um, you're right. So good job with that. Um, the idea behind this is not to say that Jesus is codependent, um, but to say that we treat him like he is. Um, and if you're not familiar with the idea or the concept of codependency, let me spend a little bit of time um, explaining what that is and why in the world we're talking about um, Jesus um, in that type of a way. The idea conceptually around codependency um, is most clearly seen uh, in, a, in a relationship of addiction. And the basic way it works is that it's in a relational imbalance. There is the giver and there's the taker. There's the giver and the taker. The giver um, gives kind of to the dismissal of self. Uh, in some ways, the giver needs to be needed, um, a want to be wanted. And so they continually give away, give away, give away. And the taker um, has some type of an existential need that they are insufficient of themselves. They need someone. They need help. They need something. And so they take, 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 take. And the secret message of the taker is I care about more what I get from you than I actually do about the one that I'm getting it from. Um, Now, as we've talked about this through this series, we have positioned ourselves as the position of the taker in realizing that what we have a tendency to do is this. We want to include God when there's something for us to take. We want to include God when there's something for us to get. When we feel like we need something, when we feel like, I don't know how the bills are going to get paid, um, I don't know where you know rent's due, and we got to put food on the table, and I don't have a job, we want to invite God in when we have need. But whenever the calling of God costs us, then all of a sudden we just kind of shrink back. In other words... We treat Jesus like it's take all the time, but the problem with discipleship or the problem with following Jesus, and you guys know this, is the call of Jesus is not to come and take, it's to come and die. It's to come and to give your life, not to come and substantiate and fulfill your life. And hopefully in the giving away of your life, your life does find its actual substantiation, fulfillment, and and need. But as we've gone along, we've put ourselves again in the position of the taker the entire time. And so for the last week in the series, I actually, again, stole this entire series um, from my good friend, Adrian Crawford, who spoke here a couple weeks ago from Engaged Church. And uh, he actually took this angle. We've taken the opposite angle that he's taken from most of the series. But he, he did this as a one-sermon thing, and he took this angle. And I thought, man, I want to end our time together looking at this, viewing us not necessarily through the lens of the taker, but through the lens of the giver. They're not from the taker, but from the giver. And the the reason that that I think is, is important for us is essentially what the giver says is this. The taker is insufficient and needs me as the giver. The taker is insufficient and needs me at, as the giver, which means this, that we can intentionally or unintentionally position ourselves in a way that essentially says, Jesus, you have need for me. Jesus, you need me. Now, let me tell you the two ways that this actually works out before we get in. Because I know at some point, somebody's thinking right now, I don't think that I have ever been so narcissistic to think that Jesus functionally, fundamentally, existentially needs me. Some of you have, okay? And that's just narcissism. But the reality is, is that what, what most of us do, what I'd say the 98, 99% of us do is this. 
God, you've called me to something, but I'm not sufficient for that calling. Consequently, I'm not going to step into what you've called me to do because I know that I don't have enough and I'm not enough. As if God needed us to be enough to fulfill the calling that he's given us. So that's where we're going with this whole sermon. I realized this in, um, in a sequence of events that happened in the book of Mark. If you ever read the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the four accounts of Jesus' life. Bible's generically or generally subdivided into two kind of categories. There's Old Testament, which is all pre-Jesus, leading up to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. And then there was the New Testament, which is kind of Jesus and beyond. It starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which are the four accounts of Jesus' life. What most, most scholars believe is that Mark was written first. Now, the story that we're going to read is interesting because it's a story of Jesus feeding to start off with 5,000 people. The reason that's interesting is because in every friend group, you guys know this, in every friend group, there's a couple of stories that everybody remembers, right? There's like ones that like over time you kind of forget and they kind of, you know, you know shift away. But, you, but like there's a lot of people that had bachelor parties, but there was that one bachelor party and you're like, oh, good grief. Do we remember that one, right? Like there's that one trip, there's that one thing and the person missed the directions and then you went an hour and a half in the wrong direction and everybody remembers. Well, interestingly... This feeding of the 5,000 is one of the only stories that's accounted for in all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only other thing that's accounted for in all four Gospels is the resurrection. Okay, So death, resurrection, there's that, and there's the feeding of the 5,000. So Mark begins to tell this account of the feeding of the 5,000. The apostles in uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 30, they had just come from, and these were you know, Jesus' kind of closest disciples, they had just come from a couple things. One, they had gone and done a bunch of ministry, so they were doing stuff out there. Then they had their friend John the Baptist, who had just passed away, and they had helped to bury him. And so now they're coming back to Jesus to have a conversation about what they have just learned. So the apostles, verse 30, returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. They were you know, tired. He says, well, basically, let's take a nap. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away into a boat to a desolate place by themselves. So as they are experiencing, as I'm sure what no one in here has experienced, they're just really busy and really tired. Now, I know no one struggles with that. But let's just say hypothetically, you live a life that's busy, and you don't quite get enough sleep each night, right? That's the position. And so he's saying, okay, now let's go to a place and get some rest. Well, the problem was is people saw where he was going, and Jesus had this interesting tendency. Not the religious folk, but the people who were nothing like him. I mean, they would come from everywhere. They were just magnetized to him. At times it seemed like the most irreligious people were the most magnetically drawn to Jesus. And Jesus loved that. He loved, I mean, he would spend hours and hours and hours with people who, though truthfully and functionally since he's God none of us were actually like him you know how there's always that religious group that feels like they're like Jesus right well the ones who didn't were the ones who were drawn to Jesus and the ones that he oftentimes spent the most time with so he starts teaching them he starts having conversations and in verse 35 and when it grew late his disciples came to him and said this is a desolate place and the hour is now late Good context. So send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now this is a, at this point, 
Very reasonable response, right? We're all at church, and you're sitting here, and you're listening, and then all of a sudden you realize you're hungry, which, by the way, I just want to say this. This is how you know Jesus was a better communicator than me, which I don't think anybody doubted walking in here, first off. But, like, no one has ever been like, man, we were just so captivated by what you said then. I forgot to eat. Most of us are like, are we going to get out in time to beat the Baptist to lunch? You know, like, that's the kind of the current... And so they're captivated by Jesus when he talked and when he taught, even though they were nothing like him. And so they're just drawn in. And so the disciples say, Jesus, um, <clears throat> I don't know if you know this or not, but we better, we better dismiss these folks because they're starting to get hungry and we're going to have some problems if, if too many people get hungry all at the same time and no one has anything to eat. But he, being Jesus, answered to them, being the disciples, he says, you give them something to eat. To which I feel like, the, you know, I, mean, I want you to imagine. Imagine we have church. And I want you to imagine there's 5,000 people. In fact, not just 5,000 people. It's 5,000 men. So who knows how many women? Who knows how many children? I mean, it's just a ton of people. And about 10 of us get together. And I'm like, yo, staff, there's about 7 of us, 12 of us. Y'all feed them. They're like, bro, we don't have a budget for that. Like, we don't even have, like, like what are you talking about? He said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And I know everyone is really sufficient in the modern day equivalency of, of, of 200 denarii. But that's about like saying the average wage for the average worker was about a denarii. So it's about two, if, if you kind of mix the average wage of the guy at Chick-fil-A and the girl that's the CPA and you kind of combine them into the two, right? That's about a denarii. And so they're saying, Jesus, so are you saying you want us to spend 200 days worth of work to, to feed all these people? And he, being Jesus, said to them, and I love this question, how many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have? I want you to go and see. I want you to go and see how many loaves you have. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to pull out before we go on. Jesus starts, and as they're doing ministry and as they're doing their thing, all of a sudden they come to this realization that there's this massive need around them. And then once he sees the need, he asks them the question, what's in your hands? Now, I think for, for, for many of us, one of those two things is where we enter in this morning. Because a big first step for some of us, honestly, would just be that we would see the needs of the people around us. Right? That we would just see and say, oh my gosh, there's people around me that are hurting. There's people around me that are in need. There's people around me that aren't me, that are hurting, that are around me, and I feel called and compelled to do something to meet that need. Like, let's just pause and say this. If you're here and you're skeptical about Jesus, church, God, faith, Bible, Christianity, religion, I mean, if, if people actually, Jesus followers actually simply had the empathy to acknowledge the need without being accusational in their acknowledgement, I think for many of us that would just change how we view God, how we view Christianity, church, Bible. Because we have for so long seen people in religious places and spaces that saw need, but the assessment of the need was also equivalent to an accusation of why that need existed. 
as opposed to a feeling of responsibility that we need to do something about this. And then he looks at him. He says, okay, so if the first step is simply singing, the second step is, let me ask you this, what's in your hands? What's in your hands right now? What's in, the, what's in your hands that you have, that God has given you and equipped you to do and meet that need? To which many of us, we enter in the story again here because we look at what we have in our hands and we see this person that's next to us at the cubicle at work and we know that they're going through this deep existential crisis. They're going through maybe this, this problem in their family. They've got something going on with the kids and we know that we don't have the sufficiency to meet that need. You have a friend who is skeptical about faith and you don't have all the answers. You see a problem in your own marriage. And you know that, man, it just seems like the chasm between us. I just don't feel sufficient that I have what it's going to take to actually make this work for the long haul. You see ministry or you see need. And Jesus didn't say to be sufficient. He just said, what's in your hands? What's in your hands? How many, do you, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found it, they said five. Five and two fish. Now here's the problem. If you're, if you're a, a, a church person, we'll say, you know how the story goes. Right, you know, and he's about to break the fish, and he's about to say, God, and God's going to show up, and God's going to do something. But I want you to imagine, you're the disciples in this moment. You see 5,000 people. Jesus says, you feed them. You're like, bro, here's what we got. I don't even know in that moment you're thinking, okay, it's about to go down. Right? You're just thinking, this is stupid. Right? Like, Probably. Like, you're probably just sitting there thinking, like, there's no way this is actually going to happen. This is going to work. This is going to make sense. But, but God called me, and he said, what, what do you have? Well, here's what I have. I have a couple loaves and a couple fish. He commanded them all to sit down in groups of green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. That must have taken a while in and of itself. There is, by the way, a side kind of principle that exists in this, which is that we prepare to the level of miracle that we expect. Preparation and miracles don't miss each other. They actually go with each other. It speaks to the faith that we have. That's a different note for a different day. In taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, he said a blessing. He broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. And then they all ate, they were all satisfied, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men, not including women and not including children. So this massive feeding happens as these people basically just come to God and said, okay, you asked what we have, this is what we have, this is wildly insufficient to meet the need. And in that moment, it's basically God saying, I think it's cute that you think that you need to be sufficient to meet the need. A couple chapters later, this is the progression that happened. In Mark 8. In those days, when again a great crowd gathered together, classic Jesus, and they had nothing to eat, he calls his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. 
Now, at this point, Jesus is a degradingly better communicator than me, right? Like, I can't, I can't carry you past lunch. Three days in, they're like, we want to hear more. His disciples are, he, Jesus is like, hey, disciples, I, you know, next, last time, last time you brought this to me. Now, let me bring this to you. Let me ask you this question. Let me, let me, let me run this by you. What are we going to do? They have been with me three days. They have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. In other words, we're in a desolate place. Even if we wanted to send them somewhere, if they were to walk there, they would faint and they would pass out. To which, like, I think probably every mom in the church right now would say, see, you should have planned better, right? At least that's what mine would have. And I would have said, yes, ma'am. His disciples answered, how can one feed these people with the bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them again, how many loaves do you have? See, I love this because Jesus steps into this moment and says, hey, the question, the question to be clear is not what is the need. The question is what in your hands, what is in your hands. I know the need. I'm God. I'm aware. I'm the one who brought the need to you, by the way. I'm the one who attracted the need, by the way, that the need was brought to me because I always attract people who are in need. I always attract people who are broken. I always attract people who realize their deficiency. And right now the deficiency is that you don't have enough food. I know that you're looking around saying, practically, how does all this work? Well, perhaps it's not that I need you. Perhaps that I'm going to invite you into what I'm doing. And so let me ask again, what's in your hands? How many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So he directed the crowd to sit down. He took the seven loaves and giving thanks, he broke them. Gave them to his disciples. I sat before the people. And they set them before the crowd. They also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. They ate and were satisfied. And it took up the broken pieces and left over seven full baskets. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. Immediately he got into the boat with his disciples went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now what's interesting, what's interesting, is over the next little bit, Jesus is going to get approached by some Pharisees, some kind of religious leaders, who come and ask him and say, basically, Jesus, um, if you are the Messiah, perform a sign for us. Which I feel like Jesus would be like, did you not see what we just did? Like, you don't want to talk about the 4,000. Let's talk about the 5,000. And that was just, that was, that was just the, the, the dudes, the bros, the men. You're not talking about the women and the children that existed in here, right? But there was this constant need to say, no, we want you to prove it to us more. We want you to prove it to us more. We want you to prove it to us, prove it to us more. And it was interesting because I um, was reading this. So I started to say this earlier, but how I started to read and think about this is I... Um, was reading through Mark in my quiet times. I oftentimes don't, I don't preach a ton on just the things that I read. Um, it, it just helps, it's a helpful boundary for me to not have to, every time I read the Bible, think, how would I preach this? How would I preach this? How would I preach this? But as I started to think, I noticed this progression. And as I started thinking about what we were talking about today, I was like, man, I think this is the thing. Because this next set of verses, on, on a third different day when I'm reading about stuff, and I'm reading about the sufficiency of God, was finally when it clicked in. So he dismisses the Pharisees because of their lack of belief in the sufficiency of Jesus, in essence. 
So verse 14, they're back in a boat. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. I love that. I was, somebody left the ADHD dude in charge. I'm just going to say that, right? Like, somebody walked up, and they were like, you know, hey, um, you, you know, I mean, it was, it was, let's be honest, it was probably Judas, right? He, I mean, he kind of messes some stuff up. It was him or Doubting Thomas. It was my top two picks, right? So, so somehow, somebody was supposed to bring the bread. They get into the, in the boat. They're like, Judas, you got it? Thomas, no, you got it? Well, I know you're always doubting, and Judas, you're always betraying. So it's no shock to me that neither one of y'all jokers brought the, the bread, right? But so they're in the boat. There's no bread. So they start having this discussion. Jesus stops and just starts teaching, and he, being Jesus, cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. Now, what's interesting in this is there's a bunch of different ways that Jesus would use the, the, the idea of Herod and the idea of the Pharisees to, to infuse some really, really poor, bad, theological, ideological, belief, action-centered things. And he would basically say in this moment, be careful, be careful that the unbelief of the Pharisees and of Herod, be careful that they don't believe that my sufficiency is sufficient, doesn't impact you. Well, verse 16, they have no care for that conversation. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. you got to imagine, if you're Jesus, you're like, come on, right? Now, most times I empathize with the, with the disciples. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I would probably make that mistake too. At this point, Buddy, Buddy being Jesus, had just fed 5,000 people. He had just fed 4,000 people, right, with a couple loaves, and all of a sudden there's 12, and a couple loaves, and all of a sudden there's seven baskets. And then he looks at them, and he says, all right. <clears throat> um, and they look at Jesus, and they're like, there's 13 of us in one loaf. Man, we're hungry. We don't know what we're going to do. I feel like Jesus is like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this is ridiculous. And I love, this is the part where Jesus got me because this is more of like a Socratic method of teaching where he just peppers them with questions. He doesn't even really give them the point. He just basically gives them the point by asking them the questions. And this is what he says to them. He says, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, which is, by the way, why Jesus would be terrible to bring to a party because he knows what you're thinking while you're thinking it, and he has an answer for it. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, he says, this is a real question. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, and here's his point. Do you not yet understand? I love that. Because he doesn't say, okay, and so here's the point of the thing that I'm saying and the question that I'm asking. It's, it's as if Jesus is saying in this moment, do you not understand that it's not about you bringing something because I need it? It's about me inviting you to participate in it. It's not about the fact that I need you for us to be able to eat. I'm inviting you to the provision where we can all eat. If you've ever had a, had a um, hidden assumption, the problem with hidden assumptions is that they're hidden. 
But I realized, I started thinking about this. I was like, man, I think I probably do this. As much as I want to push the disciples aside and say, how in the world can they see him feeding 5,000 people, 4,000 people? Now there's 13 of us, 12 plus Jesus in the boat. They only have one loaf of bread, which honestly, they could all eat something. And how could they look at that and they could be grumbling about it? Then I started to think, how many, how many times have I seen God do extraordinary things to which I cannot take credit for in just seeing people come to know him? but then question whether he's going to continue to move. I started to realize this. The hidden assumption, the hidden assumption that made this whole thing work, which sounds silly when I say it out loud, is that the breadcrumbs and the fish, or the bread, loaves, and the fish, were the necessary raw materials. They were the necessary cost of goods sold, which gave Jesus the raw materials to perform the miracle. And I realized, dude doesn't need the bread and the fish to feed people. You ever think about that? He didn't need it. It's not like he was like, I mean, I don't know what we're going to do. Woo, this is a tough one. Oh, oh, you do have some bread? You do have some fish? Oh, perfect. I was hoping that someone had something so that I could perform this miracle. From time to time, when we go to the grocery store, or from time to time when Instacart shows up at our house, and we go to get our groceries out and bring them inside, our kids will run out, and they want to participate. And there's this interesting cross-reference, kind of an XY axis, of what's light to carry but not easily breakable. You know, and you're, as a parent, you're trying to find that out. And so we hand them like a bag of chips or something. We say, here. Carry this. Now, as a parent, am I in existential need for my kids to carry that bag of chips to get it in the door? Of course not. But what am I doing? They came out because they wanted to help. They wanted to do something. In essence, in that moment, they were looking for some type of a point, some type of a purpose. And so I, I said, okay, here's what I think your hands can handle. And I know there's a lot more to this, but I'm going to give you what your hands can handle because when you care what you ha- your hands can handle, you find meaning and you find purpose. But I don't want you to think that in your finding meaning and your finding purpose that I actually need you because these groceries are getting inside either way, big dog. Do you think if LeBron James and Steph Curry got together on a basketball team and they said, Ben, we want you to play on our team, they would need me? That would be incredible. I would probably not be here right now if they needed me. So why in the world do we think that God needs us? And here's what's amazing. He doesn't need us, but he has invited us. And that is so much better. Because needing means that you're here not because of you, but because of what you bring. But when I invite to participate, when I invite to be a part of, I'm saying I want you for you. He gives us the opportunity to be invited in, not the need to be needed in. But let me say this. 
There are so many of us as Christians right now that are wildly inactive in our faith because we feel insufficient to the call that God has given us. And because of the fact that we feel insufficient, God's looking at us and saying, what's in your hands? And you're saying, this is what's in my hands. And I have people and I have friends and I see need and I see hungry people and I see broken people and I see you know, a struggle with literacy rate on the south side and I see, I see all this stuff that's around me. And God, I don't feel like I'm good enough, sufficient enough, strong enough, big enough to do what you've called me to do. And so I'm not even going to step into it. Most Christians... We sit on the sidelines or perhaps in the stands and cheer for Jesus and cheer for ministry and don't actually do anything because we realize we're insufficient. You want to know what the biggest problem with our view of God when we think that God needs us and we feel like we can't step into something? Let me be as clear as I possibly can. When we think God needs our sufficiency When God needs our sufficiency for ministry, we are a half step away from thinking that God needs our sufficiency and our holiness to be in relationship with him. Here's what the gospel says. Think about this. The gospel, the news of Jesus coming to planet earth, dying, all that stuff. The reason that was needed, the reason that was important is because of our sinfulness. Because every single one of us, every single one of us, starting from the time that we were, you know, in first grade and we took our, you know, brother or our sister's candy or to the point where we were in middle school and we just said, I, you know, I'm just going to do whatever I want because I'm young and I'm insecure and I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And so I'm going to tell my parents I hate them and everybody else, right? Into high school when you just think that you're like super cool because you figured out how to wear clothes like a normal person, right? And then all of a sudden you're like, ooh, you're fast. Wow. You know, you're athletic. Oh, you can sing and dance. And then that's, maybe that's awesome. Maybe you may, I mean, you just sing and it's like the, the heavens opened up and the angels are like, oh, Jenny just sung, right? Like maybe that, that is you, but, but isn't this true? That we have all had seasons where we walked away. We knew the good that we ought to do when we didn't do it. And we knew the good that we ought not do are the things that we ought not do when we did them anyways. And the fundamental human condition that that creates is a sinful condition. You don't have to feel bad about that. We just have to acknowledge that. I mean, we do feel bad about it. But God's purpose is not to make us feel bad. It's to make us aware so that we can realize our need. Because God in his holiness is pure. God in his holiness is perfect. God in his holiness cannot have in his perfection, cannot have imperfection in his presence. The problem is we as people are imperfect people. I can try to be better. I can try to be good. But as good as I try to be, I will still be imperfect. And if I have sin, God cannot have sin in his presence. Consequently, God knew that, saw that, did not expect us to be sufficient in our morality and in our holiness, but instead, Instead, gave Jesus so that when God the Father sees us, he sees Jesus' righteousness cloaking us, that we are not, we are still sinful people, but we are forgiven. That he paid the price that we couldn't pay. There had to be reconciliation. There had to be restitution. And that came through the person of Jesus. In other words, the gospel says this. In acknowledging our sufficiency, we become aware of the sufficiency of Jesus and our need for him in our salvation. Here's why I think this matters. There's a lot of us in this room who are running from God because you feel insufficient in your holiness and your morality without even realizing the insufficiency 
and your holiness and morality is the entire reason that Jesus came. We are running from him for the very purpose that he ran for uh, from us, or ran for us. And so we look and feel like sometimes God needs us. Not needs us in the sense of he can't do anything without us. But if God were going to do anything in us and through us, we need to be better. We need to know more. We need to be better equipped. And should we be in the process of all those things? Of course. But we do those because we're invited, not because we're needed. So let me ask you this. What's the ministry? What's the need that God has called you to? but you are currently not leaning into. Who's the person? Who's the person in your fraternity? Who's the person in your sorority? Who's the person in your workplace? Who's the person that you're like, I don't want you to save this person because in a couple weeks, I'm going to go home for Thanksgiving and that person, that aunt or uncle is there and man, I would just rather not be that person in that moment. Who's the person? The people, the need that perhaps you have disqualified yourself, where God is simply asking this question, what's the need and what's in your hands? What's the need and what's in your hands? And will you trust my sufficiency? Maybe it works out how you want. Maybe it doesn't work out how you want. But here's what I can tell you. That we serve a God, we know a God, we love a God who is so extraordinarily sufficient, who is not codependent, who doesn't need us, but he chooses us, he invites us, he welcomes us, and he uses us for us and for our good and for our blessing so that we can be a blessing to other people. He doesn't need us. He invites us. And it's way better. If you're right now running from God because you don't feel like you're good enough, No, that's the exact reason that Jesus ran to you. This is why Paul in the book of Galatians said, you foolish Galatians, are you now trying to finish in the flesh what began in the spirit? Are you now trying to perfect in the flesh what began in the spirit? This was a movement of God where we declared our insufficiency and his sufficiency. So let us not, once we have acknowledged that, walk away from that. Let's just simply say, Jesus, I see the need. This is what's in my hands. I want to see what you can do with it. And let me just finish our entire series with this. Let me just cast a little bit of vision. Can you imagine, I mean truly, can you imagine what would happen in a room this size? Don't even, not even the other services, just who's in the room right now. If every single one of us who considered ourselves a Jesus follower You've given him your entire life, your entire heart, your entire everything. If we just simply said, God, will you help me to see the need in front of me and offer up to you whatever's in my hands, as insufficient as it might be? Because I know that you don't need me, but God, I am delighted to carry that bag of chips for my heavenly Father. I am delighted to play on the team that I am not worthy on playing on. And I feel, isn't this interesting? Because when you feel invited, I mean truly invited, you don't feel obligated, which is what some of us feel about ministry, about loving and serving and needs. You feel honored. You feel honored. You feel honored that you get to spend time with God because you know you shouldn't. Because you know you've messed up. 
And you feel honored that your father still invites you anyways. Not obligated. If you're in here and you're running from God, the invitation is clear. And it's simply to stop and say, God, I am sufficient and you're sufficient and I give you what's in my hands. If what's in my hands is my life, I give it to you. If what's in my hands is my money, I give it to you. If it's my career, I give it to you, God. And I just see this need of this person in this class or in this cubicle or in this workspace or in this office or in the, the ball field where my kids are playing. God, just help me in my insufficiency. I see the need. I see what's in my hands. And I say yes to the invitation. I cannot imagine if God could do all of that through 12, 12 guys who continually got it wrong in a boat, what he could do through a room this size. Let's pray together. Jesus, we know that you did not come because of our sufficiency, but you came to planet Earth because we aren't. You came because we have need, not because you have need. You became because we needed forgiveness, not because we needed forgiveness. You came to help and to serve and to love. Not because we deserved it, but because we needed it. And then you call us to do the same, not because we're good enough or because you need us for it, because, God, you could do it without us. Because you have given us an invitation the invitation of participation. And so, God, I pray that each one of us can see the needs of the world around us, can see the hurt in the world around us, can see the hurt in the relationships and the people that we're close with, the family members that we're close with, the people we go to school with, people we go to work with, people we go to the gym with, ourselves. God, would you give us the wisdom to see the need and the courage to say, Jesus, I know that this little bit that I bring to the table is insufficient. But this is what's in my hands and I offer it to you regardless. Would you help us to not see our insufficiency but to see an invitation to experience yours. Would we no longer feel obligated at the call, but feel honored that our Father calls us to participate? God, I pray that every person in this room who is running from you because they don't feel like they're good enough would know that they were never supposed to be, and that's the entire reason you came. So God, we give you what's in our hands. Our lives, our hopes, our futures. And Jesus, we just pray that you would take it and multiply it. God, would you do something so extraordinary? Would you change marriages? Would you change relationships? Would you mend broken hearts? Would you heal the sick? God, would you feed the needy? God, would you help? Would you do stuff that was just 
massive compared to the offering that we bring. God, because we know you are God and you never needed the bread and the fish to feed the people, but you gave the honor of the invitation. And so, Jesus, we just simply say yes to that this morning. Would you give us the wisdom to see the need and the courage to offer whatever's in our hand? And would you take it and use it in such a way that we could never get the credit for it? And if there's anybody in here who's running from you, I pray that they stop and they experience your love and your invitation that was displayed on the cross. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.